Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 122 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor podcast, where we are talking about the office and is it dead? My name is Nick Hill. I'm a real estate investor, mortgage agent, lucky enough to be co-host of this podcast, joined, of course, by none other than Daniel Foch. Dan, what's going on, man? Yeah, not much, man. Um, I think uh, just to clarify, we are not talking about the American sitcom television series, The Office, which is, in fact, dead. It stopped, uh, stopped airing in 2013. Great show. Great show. Maybe one of the most mimetic or like memed shows ever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my name is Daniel Foch, real estate broker, investor, and one half of this podcast. And The Office is a big thing. But uh, but before we do that, I guess we should pitch course. We've been talking a lot about it. We have quite a few listeners who are a part of it. We're excited to to be working together with listeners from the show and people from the industry. We have a really wide breadth of members in the course, I would say, from realtors to home builders to experienced investors to brand new investors. And really think it's going to be developing into something great. Uh, so if you are interested in joining us, I'm sure Nick has more to say about it, but check out realestateinvestingcourse.ca. Yeah, links in the show notes. Go check it out. I'm really excited for the community aspect. You know, we talk a lot about helping each other out and and building a reputation and building that team, and and that's where this is going to happen. But so go check that out. Reach out if you have any questions. But we've got a lot to talk about today, Dan. So let's dive right in. And you know, I'm going to start things off with a little bit of history here. The Nestorian. <laughs> here we go. The nine to five. Okay. That probably invokes a lot of different feelings for different people. The modern nine to five, which is the eight hour work day, was invented by American labor unions in the 1800s. And then it went mainstream by a little known guy named Henry Ford in the 1920s. Workers today are still expected to accept the same shifts because we've come so accustomed to it. It, it went extra nine to five in 1980 when Dolly Parton wrote perhaps the most catchy song ever about the nine to five, but, uh, but alas, can, um, can I get a note? Can I get a, can you sing a note for us? Maybe yeah, we'll save it for the end. <laughs> maybe it has something to do with the rising and setting of the sun. Um, you know, the agricultural revolution had people, you know, really following the, the cycles of the sun, right. Um, dust till dawn, et cetera, et cetera. Rest a lot more in the winter when there's more, uh, less work to do and more, more, uh, darkness, I guess. But um, these times make sense when determining the standard beginning to end of an eight-hour workday. Of course, we know that many people work different hours than this. Actually, I'm reading a book right now called The Enlightened Capitalist, and it's talking about how um, people used to work like 10, 12, like 16-hour days. And uh, now we're talking. This is like during like the, the um, textile, revolu like, textile revolution in like the UK, and like it was... Apparently, capitalism felt that kids had to work as well, which was really this was a dark time for mankind. This, this book is very wow. interesting. Book. Yeah, anyway. But uh, we know that many people work different hours than this, and most people still, or at least consider an eight-hour shift five days a week. And, and most of these nine-to-five workers spend that eight hours in an office, or at least they used to. So now let's talk about the office. Now, I want everyone listening to take a second and imagine an office. What do you think about 
Maybe you're thinking of your own office, that, you know, classic water cooler, the view from your desk, your annoying neighbor at work, the dreamy corner office where you can put your feet up on the desk. Or maybe you're thinking of that endearing mockumentary show, The Office, which we just talked about, you know, the typical American office where the lives follows the lives and people living in it. And man, I got to say, Dwight Schrute has got to be one of the best TV characters ever. Or maybe instead of an office, you can relate more to the movie Office Space, where disgruntled employees hate their workspace and take it out by destroying a poor, innocent fax machine in a field because your boss, Bill Lumberg, asked for too many TPS reports too many times. So offices, regardless of how you think of them and the way that we use them, have continued to evolve. In the 1960s, full-service office lunchrooms were replaced by self-service kitchenettes. And around the same time, tightly packed rows of desks, a layout borrowed from factory floors, began to give way to flexible privacy of the good old-fashioned cubicle, a Mm. shift that continued for over the coming decades, and breakthrough technology such as the good old-fashioned telephone. Personal computers, never heard of those, PCs and emails <laughs> have expanded where, when, and how we work. You imagine this, that people used to just go into the office and it was just a desk with a phone on it and what like a ream of paper. Even do? You just sit there and scribble, I guess, right? <laughs> Dial. There's a cool thing called a Rolodex. Yeah. I mean, damn, we still do that. Power, power dialing, smile and dial power hours. So this is an article taken from the Harvard Business Review. So, you know, they may know thing, a thing or two over there titled Technology has continued to shape the way we use the space around us. In the 1960s, offices were redefined by the innovation and implementation of the cubicle Telecommuting started in the 1970s. This was the first time companies started to experiment by leveraging technology to allow employees to partially work from home. The 1980s were defined by the personal computer in an office. So, boom, now there's not just a piece of paper and a telephone. You are lucky enough, or if you were lucky enough, you got a personal computer. And AOL and Outlook were released in 1993, and free email became available in 1996. And the 1990s office was changed and shaped by email. It is interesting. I I always felt, I actually wrote an article, like I used to write LinkedIn articles, and it was it must have been like 2018, 19, maybe early 2020. It was pre-COVID that I was talking about how, you know, the advent of free long distance calling or unlimited long distance calling changed the way that people could work from home. You know, they could work from home one day a week because they could start doing their phone calls from, you know, like Peterborough, even if they worked in Toronto and it wouldn't bankrupt them. Because back then, like people were spending <laughs> hundreds of dollars on long distance calling, right? And I felt that- Crazy universal internet service would change the way that the office was as well. Like if you just had 5G everywhere, which was ha- that's around the time it was happening. And that's kind of why I meant, mentioned, I think it was when Rod Rogers Infinite first came out. I had felt that that could really change the workplace. It, obviously the pandemic did all of the work anyway, but I, I really always felt that we were headed in that direction. Um, as soon mm-hmm. as you give people the tools and make it a universal tool. Anyway, what changes our office now? Remote work has always been a thing, like I was just talking about, but not like we know it today. Pre-pandemic, the office life was, or the office was a part of life. Post-pandemic, it, it very much is not for a lot of industries and a lot of people. So, what happens when we leave millions of square feet of, of office space empty across the globe? Well, let's take a look. 
So I'm going to start things off by uh, reading a bit of an excerpt here from a Great Globe and Mail article titled Vacancy Rates in Downtown Ottawa Hit an All-Time High as Public Service Employees Continue to Work from Home. So before I dive in here, Dan, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at uh, work from home and, and the vacant office base in Canada. Then we're going to look at it as a comparison with Canada and the States. We're going to look at it in the States. And I think we're going to finish things off by kind of looking at it in a global perspective on, in some other, you know, world-class cities, if you will. So from the Global Mail article here, the return to office policy of the federal government, Ottawa's largest employer, has resulted in a unique set of challenges in its downtown office market, say commercial real estate insiders. Last year, the Treasury Board of Canada Secretary announced a common hybrid model in which its employees would be required to return to office for at least two or three days a week. A resulting two-week national strike in April with more than 155,000 public servants on the sidelines disrupted some government services with the work-from-home policy being the linchpin for the work stoppage. A survey released in June by the Professional Institute of the Public Service of Canada showed that 70% of respondents were dissatisfied with how the return to office policies were implemented which has left some commercial real estate veterans in Ottawa wondering what's next for the downtown core that's seeing record high vacancy rates. Alan Doak, a partner at Proveris Commercial Realty, says when and how often public service employees come to the office is a, ma- is a manager-to-manager situation, an uncertainty that has left many tenants and landlords in the lurch. Now let's talk about downtown investments. Crown corporations, large national associations, and pseudo-governmental entities tend to follow the public service and it remains to be seen how many of those organizations will downsize, move, or right-size their real estate footprint. Mr. Doak says, we've got a bottleneck and we don't have any clarity on it. As real estate professionals, it's time to ask the government to signal that if we care about what the capital of our country looks like, being Ottawa, we need to start investing in downtown. And the best way to do that is for people to return to the office for the majority of their working hours. You got to love it, eh? All the CRE boys just pump in the office. Just please come back, please. <laughs> it is funny. Like there, there is a, such a divide in there's, uh, there's very, uh, there's very much the absence of a middle ground in this uh, return to work. Dude, debate. 70, 70% one way. I mean, that's a, that's a majority, but you know, but even like, there's nobody who's like, Oh yeah. Like the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. It's like, we, it's office maxis. Like we have to go back to the office six days a week now <laughs> or, or like, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, it's, I, I, I interact with people from either side of the aisle on, on Twitter a lot. And I just think it's such an interesting debate. Um, anyway, to encourage business support for the area, Sean Hamilton, a principal at Proveris, organized a recent event called Ottawa is Open for Business. It was attended by 300 plus people, including representatives from all three levels of government. Calgary has a higher vacancy rate than we do, they said, but their occupancy rate is higher than Ottawa because the private businesses call people back and people go, Alan Doak said. We wanted to say to the public sector, to the private sector, come on in, the water is fine, Mr. Hamilton said. The gap in communications from federal government is causing downward spiral in our business, he adds. Paul Thompson, the Deputy Minister of Public Services and Procurement, recently told the Standing Committee on Government Operations that instead of a 40% reduction in its real estate holdings, a 50% reduction is now more likely. The Public Services and Procurement Officer holds 6.9% 
million square meters of office space in Canada. That's more and more than half of that is in the Ottawa Gatineau area. So according to a CBRE study, Ottawa's downtown vacancy rate in the second quarter was just over 15%. That's below the national average of 18%, which is just wild, but it's the highest in Ottawa's since CBRE began tracking that stat in 1996. 96, Calgary great year. What do you know about 96? I just know that uh, the economy was just ripping in the 90s, I heard. <laughs> Calgary had the country's highest vacancy rate at 31.5%. Crazy, but it was one of three cities with a positive net absorption in this year's second quarter. Other major markets have their challenges as well, but we have a totally different type of worker here. Calgary has a higher vacancy rate than we do, but their occupancy rate is higher than Ottawa because when the private businesses call, people answer and go back. Ottawa's working population is about 737,000 and the federal government employs more than 113,000 people up from 100,000 in 2021. But what happened to the office those workers occupy? Louis Karam, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of CBRE in Ottawa says it's the hottest topic in the city right now. 50% of the city's inventory of office is occupied by the public service. While the PSPC's next steps and the balance of remote versus work from home are important, they're not the only drivers of what's happening in Ottawa. We are staring at a looming recession, interest rate hikes. The tech sector had been really strong in Ottawa it, That's and now is on the sidelines as they're recalibrating after the huge growth after the pandemic. All of these things combined have put us in this situation, he says. Mr. Karam, who is again an executive at CBRE, says he's walked the walk and moved to the right-sized office for the 19th floor of a building in Ottawa's downtown from a large office in the Little Italy neighborhood, and he believes the numbers won't look good for the next 12 to 24 months. But after that, things are set to improve, he explains. The portfolio's reduction of 50% is not going to happen overnight. By the time it does, all these other factors will have moved on. He goes on to say that both employers and the city of Ottawa need to work in conjunction to make the back to office efforts into downtown easier, including tackling Ottawa's much troubled transit. It's clear that remote work is not going anywhere, he says, but it's the question of how many days in the office that doesn't take away from the office space and amenities. Okay, so that's that's the article. Really interesting stuff here, Dan. We are talking about like these are federal government employees that are allowed to just work from home. And when they were told to go back, they said no and striked. And, you know, they're still at home. And now they're talking about reducing their, you know, multi-million square foot portfolio by half. It's just wild. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a trend that we really need to get ahead of. Like they're talking about it as if they need to you know, change the way that the office is to entice people to come back. I just, I don't think that's the, I think that's the wrong direction to be taking this conversation. I think the direction is let's operate on the worst case scenario assumption that, you know, work from home is, is, is here to say in, in more, prof, in a more pronounced way than it currently is. So, you know, we're, we're maybe in the office two, three days a week. Maybe you get Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right? And everybody's taking a pseudo long weekend. How how does the office universe, the office square footage universe look in that under those circumstances? And that's where I think we should be engineering. And to me, that looks like a lot of adaptive reuse, right? Um, I know we're going to go on to talk about the construction of existing projects. You can't just stop 
this pipeline of projects, right? It, so, like, we have to do something with these existing and future buildings. And, uh, and I, I just don't know, like, my, the obvious thing that everybody always says when I post anything about office on, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who don't really understand how it works will say, oh, let's just convert them to residential. But I actually would agree. I think it's, it's, we're at a point where it's, imp- it's, it's worth having a very meaningful conversation about converting to residential. And yeah, I know we'll, do you know, we'll do a full episode on that, but yeah, we should actually, cause Calgary is doing quite a bit of it, but you know, I mean, real estate Trent, um, on Twitter was like, oh yeah, you know, this is like converting a, it's like converting a car to a boat and it's like, okay, well converting raw land to <laughs> I've seen some of those on yeah. Instagram. <laughs> right. But, but converting raw land to a residential high rise structure is like converting a spaceship to a boat. So from my perspective, it's like pick your poison, right? Really? Like, both things are hard. I don't, I don't, I really don't think that that's a fair excuse. Like the current Mm -hmm. system of developing residential square footage is very, very difficult. Why not try something else that is equally difficult anyways, because it it exists and it's economic waste. Otherwise, like we literally just have these buildings sitting there with not enough people in them. Anyway, to get back to there, you know, it's, we, we didn't stop building office space. So from design to tenants moving in, it could take three to six to 10 years. So we pull up, if we pull up Altus Group's Canadian office market report, you can see how many projects are under construction right now still. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of these projects started way before the pandemic, right? They had their funding, they had their design, they had all the teams. So I mean, and, and there was a lot of construction, right? Don't forget the crane index and, and all the construction we have going on here in Canada. Nationally, there are 64 office projects that were under construction in the second quarter of 2023, totaling 13.3 million square feet with that, with only 55% of that being pre-leased. Now, years and years ago, you would see that number being 75, 80, almost 90 to 100% in some cases. Vancouver and Toronto obviously comprised the majority with 29 and 23 projects respectively, totaling 11.2 million square feet under construction. National office transaction activity has declined as investors look towards more stable forms of investment in this volatile macroeconomic environment. The report says, as previously mentioned, return to office is stalled nationwide, even with a few firms mandating return to office. The office market will likely continue to struggle to determine the appropriate space requirements for a hybrid work model and the amenities most likely to incentivize return. Yeah, that you keep on, and that's where you keep on hearing this term, right size, right? We need to right size our real estate, which to me is is honestly a new term. The the part that like confuses me is like, even if you have the right number of square footage, if it's only being used three of seven days of the week, like it just feels like not like a bad utility from my perspective. Like it's, you should almost be sharing for space sure. so that, you know, you're like trading days. And I get that that doesn't work for a lot of businesses, but it does work for, for many businesses that basically, you know, like, I mean, all the commercial brokerages are basically co-working spaces now anyway, right? Like I'm thinking of other, mm. everybody has these open concept, like communal desks and whatever it is, like that could easily, desks, yeah, yeah. Like you could literally just swap the logo on the on the office on a daily basis and it could be four different companies that rotate through the space right can, can you really picture cbre guys going into the cushman office on a tuesday though? no but it doesn't have to be that it could be any other business right <laughs> yeah i know i'm kidding um okay so now that we've uh now that we've looked at 
Canada, what's happening here. Let's look at a comparison between us and our neighbor to the south, whose top cities like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco keep making the news for not so good stuff, mostly for like defaults on commercial properties in these world-class cities. So Dan, start us off with this article here. So it says in the US, default tends to be a lot more strategic. Many loans and commercial mortgage-backed securities are non-recourse, meaning the properties are the only collateral. So the default doesn't affect the other the borrower's other assets. Though Canada's commercial real estate market picture isn't much rosier, Clayton says it would be tougher for office landlords to take the same strategy. So people aren't going to start defaulting on loans to negotiate better terms. Canada's lending market is more conservative, he adds, noting there's a smaller number of lenders and these types of loans have more recourse. It, it is also like the entities, I think, is different. There's less private ownership. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I guess it would be semi-public, similar to what that article before was describing. We get a lot of pension funds and like institutions who own office assets in Canada. Um, Simone and I did a, uh, a lot on this on our two-part episode between the Canadian investor and the Canadian real estate investor, which would be great for all, anyone to go back and listen to if you're interested in just office environment, ownership, structure, etc. So, so it says borrowers would lose some of their capital or other assets, and it would make make it harder for them to f- uh, find lenders to dig them out of the hole. And, and again, I don't necessarily know if that's true because I don't think the principles of like CPP, first of all, they're not going to default on, a, on an office building, but like a lender is also not going to go after them, you know, the CEO right. or something. It's, like there isn't really recourse. Kind of be. a stalemate. Yeah. Yeah. So still considering Canada's pension funds are typically allocating about 12 to 15% of their portfolios to real estate, there could be cause to worry about the potential effects of these defaults on their portfolios and returns. In Canada, the national total commercial office vacancy rate remained about 13%, and that's at the end of the second quarter of 2023, according to a report by our friends at Colliers International. That's 84.4 million square feet of vacant commercial real estate across the country. 84.4 million vacant commercial real estate space across the country. That is crazy. There's also significant Government support in Canada, both federally and locally, for some of the bigger um, environmental, social and governance, value-add investments, and those are through funding entities such as the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, as well as green subsidies through other municipalities. Calgary, for instance, are offering subsidies to investors that buy office buildings and want them convert and want to convert them into residential use. So, you know, he says, I think there's a lot that mitigates. That will prevent and uh, the, the widespread distress across Canada versus the U.S. So we're feeling a little better about Canadian vacant commercial real estate than we are about the U.S. Yeah. So he said he's seeing a flight to quality in the commercial office real estate market. Uh, we talk about flight to quality here a lot. It's basically the phenomenon that people will start selling uh, lower risk assets in in um, high risk times. They'll start selling. Sorry, they'll start selling higher risk assets and exchanging them for lower risk assets. So this is when you hear about people rotating into bonds. That would be a, a classic um, flight to quality. Um, so and so you see that the risk on default in some cases in class B and C offices that are struggling because of the economic environment he adds and that's being reinforced by the uncertainty of demand while workplaces are still figuring out the evolution of hybrid working ESG regulations are also coming into play as a result he expects many building owners of older office assets will see diminished demand coupled with large capital expenditure requirements coming down and a lot of folks 
really want to put this on the demand side, but it's also just a normal supply issue. Toronto brought on 11 million square feet of office space, and the brand new office space is certainly going to be better than the existing office space. Just before COVID and now in a downturn, it's it's actually slowly firming up that the class A stuff is spoken for. Five years from now, we probably won't be building quite as much as we did, and demand will slowly be picking up. Yeah, I mean, I find this really interesting. And Dan, I think we've spoken about this way back in a different episode, but it's not going to be the the brand new buildings that that suffer here, right? There's there's class A, class B, and class C buildings. Now, the class A stuff is is the sexy towers that you see downtown. Class B is is probably in those you know, 10, 15 minutes from the central business district area, just, just typically. And then your class C stuff is, is that, you know, 12 to 15 story tower that's, you know, maybe out by the airport or, you know, surrounded by a strip mall or something like that. And it's really, in my opinion, going to be the class B and C stuff that, that suffers. And that is likely going to be a lot harder to convert into residential because it's already old. It's already, you know, 30, 40 years old. No one's going to be converting a brand new space in a downtown core that was built in the last 20, 30 years, um, a class A building into into residential stuff. And, and if they do, you know, I commend them for it. But it's really my concern is what's happening with the less attractive product. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they would. This, the good part is that most of those buildings are more depreciated, so you're not like you wouldn't mm, be paying a point. premium on a per square foot basis. And they already need renovation or capex, as he mentions, anyway, right? So capital expenditure. They, they like even if you're going to buy them and keep them as office, you're probably going to end up spending a lot of money. So you, you know that kind of comes out as an opportunity cost if you were going to spend that same amount of money or whatever on getting it closer to a residential purpose. And, and it's not just to say that residential is the only end game here. It's just we're in a housing crisis in Canada and it does really seem like a logical low-hanging fruit here and in the U.S. because you do get a lot of decent locations, right? Like most office buildings are walkable to, mo- to amenities. They're close to transit or highways or whatever it is. And so that's why it's really becoming part of the conversation. Yeah, for sure. Now, I know we briefly touched on some of the U.S. cities, but I pulled this article from the L.A. Times, and I think it may add some perspective. About $1.2 trillion, trillion dollars worth of debt on U.S. commercial real estate is potentially troubled because it's highly leveraged and property values are falling. And that's according to the advisory and services company Newmark Group. Offices are the biggest near-term problem, accounting for more than half of the $626 billion of at-risk debt that's set to mature by the end of 2025. Office values have tumbled 31% from peak uh, in March of 2022 when the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates. uh, And this is data from the property analytics group Green Street. Concerns are mounting that defaults will increase as property values fall and costs rise for landlords who need to refinance at higher interest rates. Like, the, and this is the, the crazy part is like banks, all banks are are uh, decreasing their balance sheets right now. Like nobody is taking on new credit. Like there's a huge opportunity in the U.S. Something you and I have been talking about, and some individuals that I see in the industry to create like a shadow banking or a shadow banking opportunity over the next five years is going to be substantial because these smaller regional banks are just shrinking in size basically and will be for the foreseeable future because of a duration mis- mismatch like SVB and, and a couple of others. Yeah. And so anyway, over over leveraged owners 
often are more motivated to stop payments than sink money into buildings with diminished prospects for return. Blackstone Inc., Brookfield Corp., and Goldman Sachs are among investors that have defaulted. So those companies... (laughs) Like big companies are like default biggest companies. Yeah. Um, or they've relinquished offices to lenders this year. Um, it is interesting, you know, like we, on the topic of the shadow banking thing, we've, we've talked a lot on the show about a way for our listeners to, you know, invest with us in the U S and it's something that I, like I've had been approached, um, quite a bit and, you know, in, in conversations with Jeff about, trying to build something to help Canadians invest in the U.S. So it'd be, be interesting if you're interested in getting exposure to the U.S. market through a vehicle like that. Um, we have had, like we have been approached by almost like lenders who are doing hard money stuff, I would say, or like shadow banking stuff. That does sound kind of sinister, but it's really just basically being a bank or like comparable to a MIC here in the U.S. I guess they have mortgage REITs or private equity or whatever it is. Um, but if you want to get more into commercial lending, um, in the U.S. markets, just maybe give me a shout, and we'll see what that might look like. Anyway, we—I know we've looked at Canada specifically, but the U.S. Let's see what's happening. So this article from Reuters says a shift in, and this is a crazy report from McKinsey that came out on July 13th, I believe. It says empty spaces. The McKinsey report is called "Empty Spaces and Hybrid Places: The Pandemic's Lasting Impact oh, on nice. Real Estate." Yeah, so I would do- totally Google that report because it goes through the biggest office cities in the world. It says a shift to remote work is likely to wipe out $800 billion from the value of office buildings in major global cities by, and that's just in major global cities by 2030, according to a study published by consulting firm McKinsey. Yeah. I mean, these are some seriously large numbers. We're talking, you know, hundreds of billions, even into the trillions. The survey conducted by McKinsey on nine quote unquote superstar cities including Beijing, Houston, London, New York City, Paris, Munich, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Tokyo. Where are the Canadian cities in there? What the yeah, heck? I thought, I thought we I thought were Toronto. All, No, know. Toronto's just a world-class city. It's not a, it's not a superstar oh, city. Oh, not yeah. a superstar. Okay, so that's the next one. Up yeah, yeah, that's the final. <laughs> we're getting level. a little more expensive. <laughs> yeah, the final, the final city in the video game you got to face. Uh, these cities showed that demand for office space would be 13% lower in 2030 than it was pre-pandemic in 2019. So these superstar cities are locations with disproportionate share of the world's urban gross domestic product and overall GDP growth. The survey said employees continue to spend far less time working at the office compared to pre-pandemic times. Remote working seemed to have contributed to the migration away from prime cities, partly influenced by the complete work-from-home models and cheaper housing availability in suburban areas. Dan, you want to? We've got this great chart here. Do you want maybe elaborate on, on this? Yeah. So, well, this is the office occupancy index for um, Toronto. But before that, I'm going to go. I'm looking at McKinsey's report right now, and there's three charts in their report that's really interesting. So, the first one is exhibit. They call them exhibits because it's McKinsey. So, um, exhibit E1 says office attendance is lower in large firms in the knowledge economy. And it basically shows a chart like the most attended would be so reported number of days per wor- uh, week worked in the office. The lowest would be professional services. And then the highest is agriculture and mining in the office. So, uh, and they're at 3.8, almost at 3.8. Transportation is 3.5 days in the office on average. And then yeah, the lowest is professional services at three and information at 3.2. Those numbers even surprised me. I thought it would be less than three on average. Um, mm-hmm. But the, uh, the, the actual graph only goes from three to four. And then firm 
Uh, this is the interesting part. So it also sorts by firms with employee count of, and then 25,000 plus is the lowest. So, and I guess it's just more, more people to try and convince to come back to the office. Hurting, hurting kittens at that point. Yeah. But then you get to, uh, the 25 to 49 size of company and they're the highest at almost 3.8 as well. Days back to the office. So if you only have, and, and I think a lot of the smaller firms value culture, you know, you're not just a number, you're not just a cog in the machine. Right. So I think it, it, like that intimacy actually lends itself well to getting a business back into the office. Mm-hmm. Final chart here is during the pandemic. Oh, no, actually, this is a uh, second chart. Sorry. But during the pandemic, most suburbs grew more quickly than their urban cores. So difference between urban and suburban population growth rates by percentage points. Suburb- and it shows like Dallas, uh, stronger suburban growth. Um, it's sorted basically by who saw the most growth. Um, Dallas, Houston, New York City, even in su- stronger suburban growth. San Francisco. We know downtown San Francisco is basically, I don't even know. It's like a... It's like a TV show there right now. Um, a, a bad TV show. Yeah, yeah, like Walking Dead or something. But uh, <laughs> Washington, D.C. Anyway, um, goes all the way down to basically the only ones on the stronger urban growth side are like uh, Berlin, Tokyo, Osaka, basically all three Japanese cities. And then looking at like the big, big cities globally, London has the this massive gap. I'm going to post these charts somewhere because they're incredible. But uh, London has this like massive suburbanization. Um, Beijing is the opposite, actually moving more downtown, but it was previously suburb uh, suburbanized. Um, and then Shanghai is uh, suburbanizing. Anyway, um, final one, foot traffic near stores is recovering more quickly in the suburbs than in urban core. So the whole thing is pointing towards a suburbanization, a sprawling, um, of the office asset class, which we know you could see in, in the patterns. People were like, oh, I don't need to be in the city. Like, I don't need to be in this dense environment. Why should I be then? Right. So, and then people were moving out there. Companies were moving out there. And we started seeing the suburbanization of the office space. Um, so on the office, office occupancy index in Toronto, actually, do you want to quickly just give me these average weekly peak day stuff? Um, so basically, People are yeah. in the office fifty two percent of the time that they were in, in Toronto, right? And the the peak, the sorry, peak day. Yeah, sorry. we're not we're not center of the universe thing, by the way. This is just the only office return to office data set that exists in Canada. Otherwise I would be I would be fascinated <laughs> to see how other cities are stacking up in, in Canada, but this is the only data set we have. Yeah, so the peak day we're looking at about sixty seven percent. Uh and a slow day on Monday is twenty eight percent. So Everyone's taking that long weekend. Friday, Dane, is there even data for Friday? Like, is anyone even doing anything on Friday? Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't even know. They don't even show it in here. But I guess it, it would be more than Monday because um, Monday, they're saying Monday is the slow day. So, And then, yeah, it said, uh, I guess we compare that to the U.S., right? And a lot of people mention in, in Toronto, you can feel it like Wednesday is the worst traffic day by far, right? But yeah, you compare it to the U.S., they have this thing called the Castle Back to Work to Barometer. And it actually says on the 10-city average occupancy that we're outperforming the 10-city average occupancy um, in the U.S. Because they have 47.2%. Um, and that's New York, Austin, L.A., San Jose, Philadelphia, Houston, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Dallas, and San Francisco. And basically, if we take the most recent day, the I think only Austin... Houston, Chicago, or and Dallas, sorry, outperformed Toronto. And then, yeah, just one more thing before we wrap up. It looks like uh, the U.S. and North America is lagging behind Europe and Asia in the return to office rates. Anyway, I think that's it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about. It's generational. You know, the office has always been changing and it will continue to do so. So it's not the end of the world uh, and it's not the end of the office either, but it is going to change. So anyways, hope you got a ton of value out of that. Uh, We'll be back next Tuesday to talk more about real estate and real estate investing. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.